until relatively recently, people were talking about rights. They were talking about the right to privacy. They were talking about the right to free expression, both of which are important, but they're very individual. Whereas when we talk about race, we're actually talking about justice. Hi, I'm Taylor Owen, and this is Big Tech. In my line of work, I get asked to give a lot of talks and lectures and media interviews. And there are three questions I get asked all the time. One is, do I use Facebook? Not really. The second is, what's the policy solution to all these problems you're describing? Well, unfortunately, there's no silver bullet. And then, more recently, the one I get asked again and again is, what do you think of the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma? A lot of people think Google's just a search box and Facebook's just a place to see what my friends are doing. What they don't realize is there's entire teams of engineers whose job is to use your psychology against you. The social dilemma is to big tech what an inconvenient truth was to climate change. I can't think of another book or film about the harms of modern technology that has had a wider reach than this movie. And that's undoubtedly a good thing. But the social dilemma also has its detractors. Some say it buys into the narrative that big tech is pushing, that these platforms and algorithms are all-powerful. Others say the documentary proposes that we fix technology with, well, more technology, which is problematic, to say the least. But the biggest issue with the social dilemma isn't about what's in the film. It's about what, or really who, was left out. Most of the interviews in the documentary are with former tech employees, the very people at Google and Facebook who caused the problems they're now concerned about. And because the valley is largely white and male, the social dilemma is also largely white and male. But in focusing on that subset of people, the film ignores more important voices, voices that have been calling attention to the harms of technology for years, many of whom are women of color, who saw firsthand the impact these technologies were having in their communities. People like Safia Noble, Ruha Benjamin, and Mutale Nakonde. Mutale is a former journalist who went on to do policy work in DC, where she developed legislation on algorithmic biases, deep fakes, and facial recognition. The through line with all of these pieces of legislation was that the underlying technology disproportionately affected racialized communities. Now Mutale is the founder and CEO of AI for the People, a nonprofit that imagines a world in which technology is used to mend racial inequities, not amplify them. Mutale has a fascinating perspective on the intersection of race and technology, and why if we want to solve some of these big tech problems, we might want to start by looking at systemic racism. Here's Mutale Nakande. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for doing this. Taylor, I'm so excited to be welcomed. Um, <laughs> I feel like I'm in rarefied company. Oh, I, I feel the same way. So it's a good place to start. <laughs> um, so I, I mean, I wanted to start with a discussion about journalism because you began your career in journalism. Yeah. Um, worked for a number of outlets, the BBC, CNN, ABC. Um, why did you leave journalism? 
why did I leave? Oh my God, me and my journalism career of letters, as I call it, all three <laughs> letter companies. Um, I went in very, very idealistically. Mm -hmm. um, I am old. So in 2000, I was like a, a bright thing in the UK and got onto what was called a journalism scheme in the United Kingdom. And it was really in the wake of the murder of a black boy called Stephen Lawrence in East London. And uh, before his murder, uh, a gang of white youths um, used the N-word and then basically kicked him to death. The, the UK, like Canada, isn't a gun-carrying country, mm. but we do have quite a mean kind of knife game and, and, and boot game, as it were. And in response to this, the BBC had wanted to tell that story, but realized that they didn't have black journalists. And so went out into the country and asked uh, ethnic minorities, which is what they're called in the UK to apply. And I was one of the people that, that got through that process. Hmm. And so going in, I had, I had assumed that I would be telling stories about race, telling stories about justice and working with white reporters who were to do the same. And unfortunately for me, that wasn't really the case. Um, mm. It was still a very white institution. From an editorial standpoint, it was extremely difficult to get stories that I was interested in commissioned. Uh, I worked for almost a year with a senior producer trying to see whether the BBC News and Current Affairs uh, department would commission a series on the trials for slavery. And I was really interested in the role that Lloyds of London had played mm. underwriting those ships to the new world. And that was the very first time that I saw racial prejudice in my career. I was labeled a troublemaker and I'm still labeled a troublemaker. And it was, it was the, it was, really that labeling throughout my career. So by the time 2008 rolls around, I'm tired. I'm absolutely mm. exhausted. I am. I haven't been able to gain any particular traction in my career. I left as an associate producer, which is really low down in the food chain. And um, Barack Hussein Obama was running for president, did not think a black person could win, certainly not one with the name Hussein, mm. but it had to be better than where I was. Mm. I, I want to talk about that transition into the policy world. Um, but first, just one more reflection on, on the state of journalism at the time, and in particularly how it covered technology over that period. I'm wondering if the lack of representation in journalism is related to the fact they didn't cover technology critically. That that whole period was sort of embedded with this boosterism and gadget review type journalism. And was that because they just weren't being affected by technology in any negative way, so they didn't cover it? Well, the, the ironic thing is, I was covering the science beat. So one of the beats I looked at was um, reading these press releases that were coming in from companies, turning them over to senior editors, and we would just turn them around. And um, there was one story that came in around 2002 that talked about this really weird thing, facial recognition at a football stadium. 
And the way that we looked at that story back then was just like, oh my God, this is going to be so great. You're going to be able to see the faces in the crowd. And I didn't even think about that critically back then because with technology, we just never seemed to think that it impacted people. And then I was having such problems as identifying as a Black person, identifying as an injured party, identifying as identifying whiteness, that I didn't have the institutional power to even raise that. Because they didn't even see the, 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 any negative repercussions of... Nope. There was, in those newsrooms back then, and I would argue today because the Society of Editors yesterday in the United Kingdom in response to the Meghan Markle interview said that there is no racism in journalism in the United Kingdom. And that's what, March 2021? And wow. I'm speaking to you probably March t uh, 2000. Wow. That's remarkable. A 20-year period and very little evolution there. Yeah. So Barack Hussein Obama is running for president, and you make the leap into the policy world in some capacity. I mean, how can you explain how that happened and where you ended up and how you made that transition? Yeah. So I had uh, moved to Brooklyn, New York, and... Um, had just kind of fallen into community block associations and um, other kind of neighborhood associations because I, wa I wanted to meet people. And mm -hmm. I was really interested in African-American culture. And all I really knew was the Cosby show. <laughs> and I was living in a brownstone community, which very much looked like the Cosby show. And so I figured that this is what I would do. Like if I were... Um, Claire Huxtable or one of their children. This is probably what I would do. And within this group had really been, they were like, oh, we're going to go to Pennsylvania. So I live in, I live in New York state and it's very mm -hmm. blue, but mm -hmm. Pennsylvania is what we call a swing state. So you never know which way it's going to go. We're going to petition. And so I go to Pennsylvania and I see some of the work that I would have been doing if I was a journalist, you know, knocking on doors, mm -hmm to people, speaking to the candidate, but because I didn't have to be objective or I didn't have to be fair, I could just say, vote. Mm. I had never been able to do that. Like this, mm. you know, this is eight years into a career and I can finally say that I have an opinion about politics. Mm. And um, eventually the volunteers were, it was so racist and wrong, but they were like, you're so articulate. You know, we're, we're looking for people on the communication side. Do you know anything about communications? And I was like, actually, I'm a journalist. I know, I know, I know a little bit about how to be. <laughs> and they asked me to write something I did and started volunteering. And this is before virtual. So leaving New York to go to Pennsylvania and eventually a job came up in their Twitter team. And they were like, there's this thing called Twitter and we think we're gonna use it. There's this other thing called Facebook. And my boss was always like, I was at Harvard and there was this thing called Facebook where we could look at each other with our faces. And I was like, this is crazy. Why would we want to do this? This is really weird. And he was like, no, 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 you already wanna do this. But there's this other thing called Twitter and we don't really know what it is, but you can write, can you use it? And I, in my head, I said no, but in my mouth, I said, yes, absolutely. And before I knew it, I was on this Twitter team and 
um, it was through personal relationships that when that campaign ended and I'd kind of gone back to my real life, which at that point was political communications and policy advocacy, uh, about a year later, I got asked um, if I wanted to join a project with Google in New York that was looking at community engagement. And, and it, I never, it, I never thought it would end up like this. So before you went to work in DC, you had this experience with Google on sort of the, in some ways, on their policy side. Yeah. Right. There was, and how how did that evolve and play? And I, my my sense is you left with that a little bit disenchanted with the company itself. Or how did how did that play out? So I loved it initially. I loved everything from the badge to the building to the um to to just being associated and what they were doing was it was external affairs so what they were doing was reaching out to local politicians reaching out to to local interest groups to show that google could really be a friend to new york city because at that time they were buying real estate and they were really looking to um I mean, colonize is really the best term I can think about it for uh, from about 8th Avenue to, I know you guys are in Canada, but to just give you an idea. So it's about 30 block uh, radius, which is a neighborhood. I mean, that Chelsea, I mean, I, I used to live in New York and that that Chelsea Market square block is insanely big. I mean, the amount of real estate they have there is astounding. Right. So I was in Chelsea Markets, but think about from 8th Avenue down. All the way across. Yeah. You know, so um, you're, and, and thousands of jobs, and they, they had to justify that. And what that meant was I was speaking to Congresswoman Yvette Clark, who I eventually uh, went to advise in DC and others about Google hiring practices. I was talking to them about the technology and how good it would be. And I was also talking to them about really the need for Google to do this real estate grab. And it just wasn't true. There is mm. no need to grab real estate, particularly when we have a homeless crisis, right? Mm. The conversations that were critical in any way were, were discouraged. Uh, Kathy O'Neill's book came out um, weapons of math destruction. Mm. So I remember very angrily going into a meeting and saying, we can't do this. We cannot build, we cannot build a business off the backs of not just poor people and black people, but people generally, we can't exclude people in this way. That was really unpopular. Um, I remember Congresswoman Clark at one point because I'd met Congresswoman Clark in my Obama days. So even prior to getting into tech, these people knew who I was. Um, and she just leaned into me on a site visit. And she just looked at me and said, tell me the truth. What's really happening? And we we went for lunch and I, I told her the truth. And I knew that after after I had told her that it wasn't just hiring that was an issue, but it was the architecture of the technology itself mm. and design that I would, I, I, I knew that I was leaving. I mean, it's amazing how, I think that's a, a such a common story inside these companies that engagement and critique is accepted up until the point in which it gets to a certain 
nerve. <laughs> and, and, and that nerve is the design of the technology itself. I mean, you hear this time and time again with people yeah. inside the system. And it's, it's, it's the business plan. Mm. The minute that it got to the business model, it was absolutely off the table. On that, what do you make of this um, Tinmeet Geru and Margaret Mitchell episode at Google? Back in December, Timnit Gebru was fired as the co-leader of ethical AI at Google. The reasons behind the firing have been controversial and much debated. More than 1,200 Google employees and 1,500 AI leaders in academia and industry signed a petition condemning the termination of Gebru. And now... Margaret Mitchell, the other co-lead of Google's ethical AI team, said she had been fired, quoting Axios. How do you reflect on that? I mean, again, that's sort of a decade later, right? Or 15 years later, and they still seem to be having some of these internal problems. It's so triggering because I, I didn't work in that department, so I can't speak to the individuals. But I, even in my own experience, I had assignments taken from me. Um, increasingly, I wasn't on emails. It was much more difficult to get meetings with people. And specifically with the way that they did it with Mitchell, which, which seemed to be the way that I remember it, it just seems that this is the way that Google operates. With Timnit, it was slightly different because she was on vacation. Mm. But the, telling her direct reports that she wouldn't be coming back before her, um, the subtle undermining, the gaslighting. And this is where we have to really question, um, you know, we have to look at whiteness as, as, a, as a driving force. And what I mean by whiteness isn't the people. I'm, th I'm talking about this ideology of um, purity, where mm. white is the company because it's always right, it's always pure, it's always the way to go and everything else by comparison has to be dark, has to be black. And the one thing I would take is seeing Mitchell behave in the way that she did, watching the support and advocacy for Timnit makes me feel so good. Mm. Because um, 15 years ago, white employees would not have done that. And also it gets to the point that even back then, the type of people that worked at Google were idealistic. Mm. And you think that's no longer the case? I feel like they're being pushed out. Yeah. I, I feel like whether it's Google, Amazon, Pinterest, those people are being pushed out. And when mm. you go into their backgrounds, you realize, oh, we were probably at the company at the same time. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, that brings me to the, another thing I want to talk about, which is that I think when you look broadly at the tech policy conversation or the tech governance conversation now, there are all these different entry points into that discourse, uh, into this policy conversation and the need for it. Um, and in many ways, you've come at it through a lens of race. And that feels like what has what drove a lot of the initial policy initiatives you were a part of. And I'm wondering if you think that is the is that a entry point into the governance conversation, or is that the most revealing and important entry point into that conversation? Oh my God, that's such a good, that is such a good question. I think it's a entry point. And the reason I would say it's a an a entry point was until relatively recently, people were talking about rights. 
they were talking about the right to privacy. They were talking about the right to free expression, both of which are important, but they're very individual. Whereas when we talk about race, we're actually talking about justice. So we're talking about the communal rights of a group. And when we're talking about justice, we're also really considering that perhaps the rights, the laws that already exist are not adequate. COVID really revealed to many uh, white audiences that race isn't just this, it's not just about skin color, actually impacts the quality of your life, the opportunities that you're given or not, how you're advocated for or not. Mm. Um, it becomes something that people are ready and willing to accept. And we saw that post George Floyd where having, the thing I love about being a journalist and the thing I love about being the media is that I feel like we set the table for national and international discussion. And all those stories, that great reporting about racial disparities and COVID because of institutional racism, people not having access to healthcare, people not having access to housing, people not having access to adequate nutrition, when George Floyd died, many white people that decided that that was not fair and that was not a world that they wanted to perpetuate stood up and their voices were made. And so mm. suddenly, instead of race being this big divisive conversation, race became a conversation by which we could finally talk across difference. And so I like, and appreciate this lens because mm. it enables me to talk about the very real ways that technology just interrupts the most mundane parts of everyday life. I think that's such a powerful way of framing this. And it, I wonder if the acts that you ended up working on, on algorithmic accountability, on the design of deepfake technology, on biometric data, by entering into them via a lens of racial justice, you were able to zero in on that design element that is so core. Whereas if you come in through other ways, you might end up in, in more sort of, I don't want to say superficial, but kind of outcome spaces. Like I often feel the content moderation debate, for example, is, is never focused on design. It's always focused on the output of that design. But because you were focused on that justice element, you zeroed right in to those core design flaws and how those could have this negative impact on society. Is that a fair framing? Yeah. And also, and this is why, Taylor, I love your work. And I'm so glad we met at the Toronto Public Library. <laughs> I also believe that, you know, policy is the delivery system for ideology. So if you want to see how a, a, how a society thinks or feels, look at their policy outputs. And in my mind, policy is the design element for how we're gonna relate to each other. That's the design piece. And because I was always coming from that, I would never be happy with any conversation about technology that didn't start right at the beginning. Yes, I'm concerned about deployment, but the design itself is flawed. Yes, I'm concerned about governance, but you cannot provide governance structures around poor design. Mm. So let's just dive into that for a moment, just to get some clarity. So can you give some 
examples of how you see design of certain technological, either technologies or technological systems, perpetuating racial biases or discrimination? What what are you most concerned about? Sure. So I'm um, I'm pretty obsessed right now with uh, how algorithmic recommendation systems on social media. Um, spread disinformation, specifically racially targeted disinformation. And I'm really obsessed with biometrics. So when I'm thinking about social media and why it so interests me, Pew Research Center here in the States did a survey in 2019 that found that 55% of American adults get their news from social media. That is their primary news source. And we were living under Trump and (laughs) the news was under attack. So if you are somebody that in fact believed that the news was fake, you were looking to, you were looking to these platforms who'd already decided what you were going to see. So the way that social media algorithms work in terms of race is if you engage with content, that's click, share, or comment, right? Those are three Mm. types of engagement. Mm. Um, You're going to be served up that content again, because the algorithm is a, pa- is a pattern matching mechanism. And what it does is to look to match you with similar content. And what the Mueller report found in 2016 was people that were clicking on content that was uh, promoting Black Lives Matter messaging were then also being fed content that was encouraging them not to vote. One place that this ended up being really, really successful was Detroit, Michigan. Detroit, Michigan is an 89% black city. And in 2016, 70,000 people in that city decided not to vote at the top of the ticket. That swung that state to the right from Obama to Trump. Mm -hmm. In April, 2020, there was a militia attack to kidnap the governor. The state of the political communication in that particular place had become so heightened again through these social media algorithms because people that were clicking on white supremacist content were being fed more white supremacist content through this pattern matching um, process had decided that wearing a mask was a political issue. Fast forward to June 6th, they are now finding that some of the people that were in the chat rooms in Michigan also took part in the insurgency of June 6th. So that's really interesting to me because it's not just about election outcomes, it's about racialized violence and Mm -hmm. us not being able to see the other side, us not being able to go through that transformation that Mitchell at, at Google, not as an individual, but just generally, this white woman very bravely standing up and saying, you cannot harass my black employee, right? Mm -hmm. That type of growing towards a shared vision for a beloved community can't take place under that type of um, algorithmic interruption. Um, Mm -hmm. The second way that that systems can become really um, racist is is a lot easier to understand. I'm going to use facial recognition. Can I I just... To ask one follow-up on the election stuff, because I, I want to talk about facial recognition, because I, I think that, I, I agree, there's this like super acute challenge there, and I, I want to talk about that. But one thing on elections, I mean, the example you gave, you just gave is the one that's always striked me as one of the most revealing 
about the vulnerability that actually existed in 2016. And they, another one that's similar that I've always struck me is how that Beyonce group on Facebook was set up, built for a year, and then weaponized as this sort of vehicle for um, to dissuade voting the day before the election. Like race was almost used as a vulnerability by people who wanted to to affect the election. And I, I'm wondering if that means we we ended up having the conversation became entirely about election integrity and protecting cybersecurity and about Russia and. If we had actually had a conversation in 2016 after that election about the role race played, would we have had a different conversation about election interference and platforms and all of that? So that's the that's the project that we took on in 2020. So we we knew that race had been was going to be a vulnerability because if you look into the history of disinformation and specifically the history of Russian um, interference in the KGB who created it, they had been using race as a, as a tool as far back as the 1930s. And I started to do a lot of talks about the way Stalin was using the anti-lynching movement to um, recruit black people in the South to the Soviet Union and really pointing out that Angela Davis's mother had been a communist. And as we know, Angela Davis is a communist, but that came from the fact that where she grew up in Alabama is where the church was bombed by the KKK in the forties. The coming in after that were the Soviets who organized local uh, women on blocks, just like the block association I worked with. Mm. When, uh, the Obama thing, you know, black women being busybodies as we are, and um, had really pointed out that communism could be a fix for racism. Fast forward again into the 1980s and Soviet forces um, plan a story in India around the AIDS epidemic. And they say that it was made by the CIA to murder blacks and to murder um, gay people. Fast forward to the early 2000s, and I'm listening to Kanye West. And as I'm listening to Kanye West, one of the lyrics that he says in one of his songs is, you know, the CIA invented AIDS. So that using of race to turn Black people away from the democratic project and Black people away from nation state is something that is so insidious. So of course, by the time 2016 comes around, we're so primed for it. So in 2020, we decided that we were gonna, you know, insert ourselves in the conversation. And we looked at black groups that were telling black people not to vote in the election because 16 had been about Russian groups doing this work. And we identified one uh, network where they were telling black people to vote down ballot. And we um, created an alternative social media campaign to interrupt that, in which we positioned COVID as a racial justice issue and encouraged black um, audiences on social media to vote for who they thought would bring us out of this crisis. And when we measured engagement, we found that not only did our campaign work in that particular case study, but the campaign itself looked like it had been set up by Russian operatives, but it was being executed by Black people. 
but what made it what the, the question I, I love to ask people like you, Taylor, is from a policy perspective, what do what do we what do we do here? Because race is going to continue to be used. Just how it's used is going to differ. Yeah, I don't, the policy debate often just falls into these binaries. That if one makes the case that race was the underlying issue, then de facto the issue is no longer a technology issue. Right. It's a society issue. It's a, therefore, don't look at technology. This is about people. Right. And I don't think that binary is true either because there's elements of the technology, as you point out so clearly, that exacerbated or potentially incentivized that division yeah. and contributed to it. So I think that's what's so powerful about how you frame this is it brings those two together and doesn't create this these two alternatives of social issue versus technology issue. The two are actually intertwined. When we were looking at it in the um, Deepfakes Accountability Act, which was the closest one that, because we were really speaking to platform companies, we, we talked about it in terms of race becoming a national security issue. But back in 2018, 19, when we were saying this, because it was perceived to be black people who were talking about race, people were like, oh my God, you're so crazy. You're so alarmist. And so around January 12th, we went back to the same people that said that we were alarmist. And we said, you have just had a white supremacist insurrection of the U.S. Race is a national security issue. And mm-hmm. suddenly um, people, people had the ears to hear it. Yeah. And... In all of those acts that you worked on, it seems to me that coming at a tech governance conversation via a lens of racial justice led to policy outcomes that now benefit all of us. I love that you pointed that out because I think one of the most misunderstood element, at least of our work, is our underlying guiding principles. And we look to the Combahee River Collective, which was a feminist statement in the 70s. And one of the things that they say in that statement is that to free ourselves as Black women, we have to free everybody because until everybody's free, nobody's free. Mm. And I think in the imagination of the hostile right, it's this idea that black power then means white subordination. It's like, no, no, it just means everybody can live in dignity and we can live, we can live in shared prosperity, but some people will lose. If you're a billionaire, yes, we want you to be taxed in a way that means that the poorest amongst us can live healthy and dignified lives. Mm. If you are um, a man, Yes, we want you to make space for women and other feminized people, if you are non-binary people, right? Um, and, and that's not well communicated. I wonder if some of that view is crystallizing, coming back to the facial recognition conversation in that particular technology because the uh, the risks are so acute not just 
to racialized populations, but to everybody. And yet the driver for it, the change, is coming from that particular perspective. Um, Can you speak a little bit about how you think about FRT and whether it is this kind of crystallizing moment? Yeah, so I think the interesting thing about facial recognition technology from a design perspective is how the technology is often fed um, countless images of white men and then um, graphs are taken of people's faces. And what that means is a measurement between, you know, your eyes, mm-hmm. eyebrow circumference, measurement between uh, the cheek to the, to the chin. And that, that then creates the statistical model, which is labeled as the human face. And part of that is skin color, hair length, hair color. And one of the things that always interested me was in the building of that technology, research scientists are often just looking at people who are in the lab or people like them or people that can access digital images of people like them. And we live segregated lives. So here in the US, if you're a white person, you're 70% of white people don't actually know a black person. So if I were to ask one of those people to bring me a hundred pictures from their social media, it's going to be a bunch of white people that in the same, they're black people that live in an all black world. And I wouldn't have an issue with that if it wasn't for the way these technologies are being deployed and specifically in policing. Mm. So my new work is really looking at instances where facial recognition systems are being used as probable cause for arrest and then people are being incarcerated and having to prove their innocence. And this is happening. There are two cases in, uh, again, Michigan. Wow, I'm speaking about Michigan a lot. One in New Jersey, uh, Najir Peters, who not only was misidentified by a facial recognition system, arrested, but could prove that he was 30 miles away at the time. Interestingly, through his social media, he'd been going live Mm. somewhere else and and that evidence was entered. But because of poverty, ended up spending 10 days in jail because he couldn't make bail. And that story really shows how facial recognition kind of reinforces other elements of racialized violence by kind of doubling up these systems. And when we were looking at no biometric barriers of housing to housing, we couldn't believe that these systems would not only decide whether you could get into your house, but take a picture of every single person coming into the building, mm-hmm. tracking where they were going. And then in the case that we followed, those, those were just going to be freely shared with the local police force. And the, and the NYPD, to their credit, weren't asking for them. And that's the case for link kiosks, which we have here, which are kind of like smart towers on our streets. And had you guys allowed for the development of the smart city in Toronto, I'm sure it would have been full of them. Mm. Self-checkout also uses facial recognition. We're using them at our borders. If you come to JFK, you have to scan your face. We're also using them in recruitment software. And it's that third party, like what happens to the data once it's been captured? Because the way IP laws work in the US is it's the person that takes the picture that holds the right, not the subject. So if I take a picture of you, Taylor, and I send it to the police, it, that's my right to do so. Or or if I take a picture, put it on Instagram, and have signed up for the terms of service agreement, they can then train their F- facial recognition 
system on that picture. Right, right. And um, the thing that, to your point, um, I really appreciate the privacy community coming in and saying this is a privacy issue because that's really where most white people are entering this. They're entering it through that lens of privacy. And then once they learn about the racialized lens are adopting that also. Yeah, I'm interested to hear you say that because I actually, I think the just, the racial justice at entry point is more powerful you know, to a certain degree than the privacy lens. I mean, you may be saying the same thing, but like that yeah. people come at things from different perspectives and that's fine. But to me, what's so acute about the FRT debate and the policy lens is that um, the harms are, certain harms are so acute and clear and unambiguous that they raise flags about the technology being generalized and normalized. Yeah. So the last thing I want to ask you a bit about is the work you're doing with AI for the people and how I think that is sort of in many ways deliberatively appropriating to a certain degree the AI discourse in a way that you want to reframe it. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to hear more about what that looks like. I mean, a lot of this policy conversation focuses on harms. Um, how would this conversation look different if we focused on the potential benefits of these technologies? So AI for the people is, um, it's, it's really like a baby of every single part of my career. We use journalism, art, and culture as translating tools um, for policy. And the way that we do that is that we try to think of a world in which technology exists, we use it alongside with humans, and we have an alternative way forward for the future. So for example, very hard examples around that is we're in a partnership with Amnesty International around their Ban the Scan campaign. And we created a five minute film where we just told stories because mm -hmm. to your point, Taylor, the racial justice lends to the facial recognition um, debate really lends, it really allows you to, to get into those human interest stories. And mm -hmm. we profile um, a group of activists in a housing setting and then an activist who, who believes he was arrested because of facial recognition use. And the reason that we found that to be so powerful is as we show this film to policymakers and advocates um, in the United States, they pause and they start to ask questions. So how does this happen? Where does this happen? What can I do about this? And we're using that film um, strategically, we're showing it in places that are thinking about facial recognition bans or moratoriums. And we find that to be particularly powerful. And it's such a beautiful way for me to get back to my career, which was the documentary filmmaker making mm -hmm. films about science and society. You know, somebody asked me recently, if AI for the people is successful, what, what will the world look like in five years? And I was saying, well, all racial justice will have a technological analysis and all policymakers will have a place in which they can learn where the, where the barrier to entry is so low that they can just play a video and it be told in the, in the words of their constituents what is happening to them in the face of these technologies. Just in closing, you, 
you've been working in the space for a long time and it feels like we're in a moment where the conversation about race and racial justice is in a different place. The conversation about technology and tech governance is in a different place. Um, the political moment maybe is different. Are you are you broadly optimistic about where we're headed? Oh my God, I'm always optimistic. Believe it or not, I was optimistic that I would get a three-part documentary commissioned by the BBC and blaming them for racism. So I am not known for my, <laughs> my realism, <laughs> but I think now more than ever, there is the appetite for the evidence that is that has to lead us in a different direction and i mean taylor you and i talked about this too i feel like we've been in the trenches together i mean these are conversations that i started 20 years ago but generations before me these conversations were you know were being had mm-hmm. and i just see so much interest like ai for the people data for black lives algorithmic justice leave encoded justice there's now this kind of ecosystem of organizations that all want to do their bit that are speaking to um you know stanford has their race and tech fellowship and these other um these other institutional spaces that want to hear and engage and lean in and even the work that you're that you're doing at mcgill you are you are um you're giving us a space to be heard and to be validated And that's really important because we are typically on the margins. Well, I'm glad that's no longer the case. And thank you for everything you're doing in this conversation. It's inspiring. Yes, let's do it together. (laughs) Done. (laughs) That was Mutali Nakande. For more on her work, you can go to AIforthepeople.org. And as always, I'd love your thoughts on the episode. Email me at taylor at bigtechpodcast.com. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation and produced by Antica Productions. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every other week. <laughs>